The title of my talk is Atomic Habits, Behavioral Psychology and Reading the Greek New Testament for Life. And the title was chosen uh, six months ago, so no, it's just coincidence that it, it uh, has something has the word atomic in it, just to be clear. So a very common conversation for me at the end of a class or on graduation day is usually at least one student will say, Dr. Plummer, uh, what can I do to make sure that I keep reading the Greek New Testament? I don't want to lose what I've worked for. That's a, that's a common conversation, and it's a, a valid fear. We've heard many people talk about how they lost or, or a lot of their knowledge eroded. And I've been teaching Greek uh, for more than 20 years, and I've come to the conclusion um, that retaining and growing in your knowledge of Greek really doesn't have anything to do with your intelligence. It doesn't have anything to do with your intelligence. It doesn't have anything to do with the prior amount of study that you've had. It really doesn't have anything to do with how much you love God or love His Word. Many people love God and love His Word, but they find that their skills uh, in the languages are gone or have eroded or they've somehow wandered from them. And, and, and this is, I know I'm oversimplifying, so please don't, I can't give all the qualifications, but one of the, the most important things about retaining, growing, retaining, or regaining the languages, it all boils down to habit, right? It boils down to a pattern in your life of using them. And so, which raises the question, why are some people able to commit to certain habits, like reading the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament, and other people fail uh, to be able to maintain a habit? And so this, this touches on the realm of behavioral psychology. Now, I know that when I said the word psychology, I expected some vegetables to be thrown at me from uh, biblical counselors. But when I'm using the term psychology, I'm not meaning like Freudian or Jungian, uh, you know, psychotherapy. I'm talking, when I'm talking about, and I'm no specialist in this, but there's a lot of books that have come out on this recently. I'm talking about the realm of human behavior and why people do some things and not other things, <laughs> and how they're able to, uh, and, and the, the things around them that affect their behavior, right? This is behavioral science or behavioral psychology. In many, way, it's, it, in many ways, not always, but in many ways, it's similar to Proverbs. We read the Proverbs, it talks about the wise man observing life and the paths that people take and where they lead them. Now, the Bible, the Proverbs in the Bible are inspired. They're holy scripture. They always agree with what God in his character agrees with, and that's not true of behavioral psychology or behavioral science. But I do think that some of these studies in behavioral science and behavioral psychology can perhaps give us some life hacks, give us some, um, some suggestions for how we can form better habits. Some of it, to be honest, when I read some of this, it's, it's shockingly obvious. So it's sort of the, the and, and some of it is uh, surprisingly helpful. So um, there's lots of books that have come out in this. Uh, the one that I'm borrowing the title from here is Atomic Habits, uh, Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results, uh, Nudge, uh, Good Habits, Bad Habits, How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be, Tiny Habits. Now, obviously, this is not talking about how to change the human heart. Only God can change the human heart and give us, uh, bring life where there's death, give us desires uh, for his word, for him. But this is talking about people, and, and usually all the things that I've read are not dealing with spiritual or religious issues at all, but issues of diet, exercise, organization, 
people have a desire to do one thing, but they find it very, very difficult to follow through on their commitments. And there's different experiments that are done to determine how, how to best help people uh, follow through on their commitments. Uh, to, get, to get a little better sense of what I'm talking about, I'll mention something I mentioned briefly in the, in the Q&A the other day. So the field of uh, behavioral science, behavioral psychology, has now become very popular in economics. And if you've ever studied economics in college, the, it always has the rational actor, in the, you know, the rational actor who would know the data and make the best decision for, their, for, the, for themselves to maximize their, their profit or to... Yeah, economics is about how you have limited resources and what decisions you as an individual or a society should make in rationing those resources. But this, uh, this rational actor, this homo economicus, this economic man, is a fiction, right? People, people in, in real life are lazy uh, and foolish and irrational. And so behavioral economics uh, is... Uh, a field of study, it's, it's kind of veered off and said, let's actually deal with people according to the decisions they actually make rather than some uh, rational person. In fact, there's a fascinating book I'll commend to you. It's, it's been out for a while now, but Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes and How to Correct Them, Lessons from the New Science of Behavioral Economics. But one of the people working in this field, his name is James Choi, I mentioned him yesterday, professor of finance at Yale. By the way, I listened to a podcast interview of him recently with Morningstar just last week, and as at the end of the podcast, you know, it's all been about economics and finance and all this. They say, well, we just always ask people this question, how do you define success? And the first thing out of his mouth was, I am a Christian. I was like, whoa, <laughs> professor at Yale, and he leads with that, and just unashamed. I've committed in my mind, I'm going to write him a note and say, thank you. Uh, for being unashamed of the gospel uh, in the field that you're in. But he, um, in, in this, this doesn't relate at all to Christianity, but his, his, what his study was, it was entitled in the National Tax Journal, and it was, the study was Plan Design and 401k Savings Outcomes. Basically, it's, it's saying, how can we help people save more for retirement? And uh, as I mentioned yesterday, and this ties in with the idea of nudge, what can we do in institutions and in the, the environment that we're in to nudge people. Sounds a little paternalistic, but to nudge people in the right direction. The direction, if their future self could advise their current self, the future self would be, you should save more for retirement. And when they get 20, 30 years down the road, they'll wish they had been there. And, and again, the, the simple solution that they found was most effective was um, many, many companies the way they would enroll people in retirement savings plans was, okay, you're hired now, and if you would like to participate in this and have a percentage of your income go into it, you know, check this box. But a surprising number of people do not check that box, and then that goes on for years and years and years. And, and they discovered that if they just automatically enrolled people, there's, <laughs> the people would not unenroll. And then 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road, they were very grateful once they understood more that, that they had been automatically enrolled. Because of his study, um, the United States Congress actually passed the Pension Protection Act of 2006, which allowed businesses more freedom to automatically enroll people and make a default position that people are, um, that people are enrolled in uh, retirement savings. And now um, it's increased from over that, over a time period, uh, from 15% from when he first started doing this to now 
Uh, 45% of the plans, I believe, uh, at least at Vanguard Mutual Fund, are automatically enrolled. For places where there's automatic enrollment, 90% of employees participate as opposed to where they have to opt in themselves, only 63%. So you still have 10% who, who don't participate. They opt out on purpose. Now, what I want to do, that's just to give you a little more sense of, of the study and, and effects of, of behavioral science and behavioral psychology, which, of which I'm not an expert. I'm reading, I'm reading popular level books on this. And what I'm doing is I'm saying, what are some of the insights we can gain from this to help us be better readers of Greek and Hebrew, that we can have better habits. So I'm going to talk about 11 things. And so I want you to listen and with the goal of taking away two. Right? And at the end, we're going to pause for about four minutes. And you're going to, I'm going to challenge you to think, what specifically of the things presented am, could I do differently? And it really works out to, if you're willing to make a commitment, you know, write down, I will do this at this time on this day. That sort of thing. Be very specific. And um, so that's my, that's my challenge. So keep that in mind as we go through in case you want to take notes about a point that sticks with you. So we're, we're getting these insights or observations or suggestions from behavioral science. And the first one I've already mentioned uh, is automatic enrollment. So this doesn't really apply to you decisions you're going to make on your own, but automatic enrollment with the chance to opt out results and higher participation rates. I suggested yesterday, could this influence the curriculum of seminaries? I would like to see, you know, you have seminaries, quite a few seminaries now. I'm proud of Southern. Every MDiv degree at Southern has biblical languages. But some seminaries, unnamed seminaries, uh, give you an MDiv degree without biblical languages. But then if you do the extra languages, you get like a little star in your diploma that says, with languages. Perhaps... <laughs> We should encourage people, the MDiv has languages automatically enrolled in it. Uh, if you want to opt out, then we'll put on your diploma without languages. <laughs> that, that would discourage people from making that decision, maybe. Another, just another thought about this. What about if when people were graduating from seminary, there was an automatic enrollment in a plan that would remind them to daily read from their Greek and Hebrew, perhaps for two or three minutes, perhaps with some video assistance, <laughs> right? But they would have to opt out of that if they didn't want to do that. I wonder, even in churches, you can set the, the tenor of the church, if you're on the staff, and say, hey, when people join our staff, we have a, we have a Bible reading group among ourselves every Friday. You know, see you Friday. Like, in other words, what becomes the default position rather than something you you add on. So just a thought about that. Secondly, this is, again, 11 different observations that I, that I got from, and some of them are very obvious, but uh, the second one I think is very, very obvious, but human personalities and temperaments vary widely in their ability to form a habit. In the European Journal of Social Psychology, there was an article entitled, How Are Habits Formed? Modeling Habit Formation in the Real World. And so there was a study done by a professor at University College London, and they had 96 people they followed. How long did it take people to form a habit, a new habit they were trying to form? The shortest time was 18 days okay, to form a new habit, to really get it ingrained. The longest time was 254 days. The average time was 66 days. So I think one application to life is in a room this size. There are some people here who will form... You could leave today and form a new habit, some of you, very disciplined. 
Know, your, know thyself. There's some of us in here who maybe are still trying to form a habit, right? You know, you're like, I keep starting. I thought I would do this. I thought I would do this. And I just keep, which means I need more help to stick with my habit. Obviously, just intention and temperament will not cover it. So it's a, we need to know ourselves. I, we all have weaknesses and frailties. I hate everything medical, <laughs> which means when I have to have blood drawn, I say, I could pass out. I think I'm going to lean back and get ready for this, right? So you plan ahead, especially if hab- forming a habit is difficult for you. Okay, Another, here's an insight that I think you can apply, might help you. Uh, fresh start strategies can assist the successful fulfillment of commitments. So uh, various studies have been done to show that people hold their habits longer if it's tied to a particular important event or turning point for them. So the study was done where they, you know, encouraged people to sign up for some new level of savings. And some of the, you know, many of the postcards just said, hey, increase your level of participation in retirement to from 1% to 2%. The other one said, we want you at your next birthday or on the anniversary of your work. So, you know, so they were tied to specific, specific dates or events. 20 to 30% higher effective rate of commitment if it's tied to a particular event. And you think about I mean, think about the Genesis where God puts the uh, luminaries in the sky to be tied to seasons and days and times. He's wired our, you know, we have in the Old Testament, you have festivals, you have months, you have, our, as humans, we are created to live in a, uh, an envir- a cyclical environment where there are years and months and there are anniversaries. And for whatever reason, humans, behavioral science tells us through their studies that humans do better at committing to a new behavior when it's tied to a particular turning point. There's some feeling of letting go of the old and starting with the new. I mean, you see this somewhat with, um, we see this with, uh, you know, at the beginning of the new year where people make their uh, resolutions. But this can be done at other times too. For example, if you go to a Greek and Hebrew conference, it happens only every two years. That's a, that's a turning point where you have to say, you know, I've been trying, this, uh, there's, I'm going to put my stake in the sand. Something is going to change. This is a, this is a turning point. It might, or you might say, if it's you know, like, well, my, birth, my birthday's coming up. That, it's gonna, something's going to be different after when I turn 27. Let's write it in. Let's draw it in. Uh, uh, let's put it in concrete. Let's move forward from here. So fresh start strategies do seem to be helpful in uh, keeping people on their commitments. Number four, again, this is somewhat obvious, but clear commitments and public accountability, both a very clear commitment and public accountability result in greater follow-through. So uh, a study was done of medical doctors in the United States. Uh, if, you're, if you're not from the United States, maybe you don't have this problem in your country. But in the U.S., doctors give in to social pressure and prescribe way too many antibiotics because the moms and whoever else, they, if they just go to the doctor and their kids sniff and the doctor says, it's just a cold, they'll go over it. Uh, people are not happy with that. They want some antibiotics. Right? And so according to one calculation every year, American adults, so well, this is even adults, receive an estimated 41 million unnecessary antibiotic prescriptions at a cost of more than a billion dollars. And of course, there's also the cost of, of uh, you know, antibiotics becoming less effective through, uh, through um, things being able to evade, evade them or becoming uh, accustomed to them. So there was a study that was done, and they compared doctors. One, one doc- group of doctors, they just said, 
prescribe, try to prescribe less antibiotics, right? The other group, they had them sign a formal pledge. I will not prescribe antibiotics where they're not needed and to display it in their office, right? So they had to, they did that. There was a, um, let's see, what was the, it was thir- uh, 33% less antibiotic prescriptions came about through the formal commitment and through the public uh, displaying of that. Now, there's, there's all kinds of ways, right? You can, you can, different levels, you can do that with reading Greek and Hebrew. But let's, let's think about another one. Another study was done, this one in Great Britain, related to exercise. People wanted to develop a habit of exercising. And so the first group, one of the groups they gave, they gave something to track it. So there was a level of commitment. They were having to track what they, what they exercised. The second, uh, another group, there were several, but another group, they, they said they, they had to fill out a line. During the next week, I will partake in at least 20 minutes of vigorous exercise on this day, at this time, at this place. Required specificity, required commitment. They were turning this in. There's a level of accountability. The first group, um, which, again, still had accountability with the, with the tracking it, had 35% of the people who exercised. Uh, the last group, with a higher level and specificity, had 91% of the people that exercised. So again, you can see a, a level of public commitment, right? Public commitment, a level of accountability, a level of clarity. Reading from the book Atomic Habits, this is what it says. It says, the punchline is clear. People who make a specific plan for when and where they will perform a new habit are more likely to follow through, okay? Too many people try to change their habits without these basic details figured out. We tell ourselves, I'm going to eat healthier, or I'm going to write more, or I'm going to read my Greek New Testament, or I'm going to read my Hebrew Old Testament. doesn't say that here, but, but we never say when and where these habits are going to happen. We leave it up to chance and hope that we will just remember to do it or feel motivated at the right time. An implementation intention, right? Everyone has to come up with their technical vocabulary for obvious things, but as they call it, the implementation intention basically stating very clearly when and where what you're going to do uh, sweeps away these foggy notions. So just think, think about it. That could be at the end of the talk today. You could think, that's what I need to do. I need to say, this is the time every day. This is the place. This is the commitment. I need to, I need to be that precise. Because just, I'm going to read, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn Latin. It's not going to do it. You won't do it. You'll, you, you'll never follow through on that. Okay. Now, uh, let me explain this one, because in a Christian environment, the word temptation means something different than this. But temptation bundling, this is Katie, Katie Milkman her, from her book. She says, temp, these are her words, temptation bundling entails allowing yourself to engage in a guilty pleasure, not in the biblical sense here, but she said like binge watching TV, something, something that you know you shouldn't, is a waste of time, only when pursuing a virtuous or valuable activity that you tend to dread, such as exercise. So we have to ask ourselves, I know we're all busy in here, but let's say you're, doing, let's say you're a sports fan, and you're, there's nothing wrong with a sports fan, but you have to admit it can take a lot of time. You say, well, I watch, you know, during this season, I watch one major sporting event every weekend. How long does that take? Well, two or three hours. So what would it look like? There's a lot of dead time in most sporting events, a lot of commercials. What would it look like if you said, I'm only going to watch a sporting event if I also review my Hebrew vocabulary? in the dead space, right? So it's, it's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow myself to do something I want to do that I, that I you know, just enjoy. I'm going to force myself to do something I'm struggling to do and tie it with it and say they have to be bound together. 
That could be like drinking a coffee. Most people either drink tea or coffee in the morning. It's hard for them to imagine not drinking their tea or coffee. Say, well, I'm only going to drink my tea or coffee if during that time, that's, I'm going to tie that to my study of, of Greek, reading the Greek and Hebrew. And if, I'm not, if I don't read my Greek and Hebrew, then I don't get my coffee. And for most people, that settles it. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to, it's like, again, it has to, you have to, you have to tie it. It to, it's called uh, temptation bundling. Related to this, um, Atomic Habits calls, similar ideas called habit stacking. I was actually talking with Dr. Flatt. He said he recently used this method himself and found it effective. Habit stacking. What this does, it recognizes that all of us already have habits, right? Everyone in here has habits. Well, whether it's brushing your teeth or, you know, washing the dishes after you eat supper. You have things you do every day. So you take a habit that you already have and you stack another habit onto it, right? So not, not all your habits at once, but you say, this is, you know, I, I want to add this. So I'm going to take something I'm already doing. So the, the habit stacking formula is very simple. After X, I will Y, right? After this current habit, after I finish brushing my teeth, I will you know, sit in the recliner and spend five minutes uh, reading Hebrew. You know, something, just, just, make it, just, just make it like ironclad. Of course, this fits in with the other ideas of making it public, right? So there's you know, making a commitment, but also sharing it with your wife or your account, you know, accountability partner, friend. So the, these can mutually inform each other. Okay, let's keep going. And to observation number six from uh, behavioral science. Again, some, many of these are very obvious, right? These are very obvious. But your community influences you greatly. We subscribe to a newsletter on food called Nutrition Action. Has anyone, has anyone subscribed to that? Okay. They have a lot of stuff in there about behavioral science and how uh, people, why they eat too much and things like, you know, how to, how to be influenced for good. And one of the studies they had in there one time I thought was fascinating. By the way, any study that's presented, it, it, you, you always have to question, was it done well? Could it be replicated? So all that, all that is understood. But in this one study they were doing, they would have actors come into buffet lines and go along with other people to see how the person next to you influences how much food you get. So in other words, they would put some actors in who would just pile on the food, and then other people who would be very sparing and healthy. What they found was quite interesting, I thought. For men, there was zero effect <laughs> <laughs> on the person next to them. For women, there was very noticeable statistical effect. I thought that was interesting. Um, uh, an, another study on community that I recently listened to on the Planet Money podcast was um, they were trying to see if there's some way to help people from economically distressed communities to genuinely form relationships outside their communities and how that would affect them. So they took people from an inner city, economically distressed, but who were really good working out, who were you know, buff and stuff, trained them to be personal trainers and then connected them with wealthy clients who wanted the personal trainer, and then followed how that affected the family of the inner. And it was striking how, uh, the, how it affected the schools the kids went to, their, what they did in the summer, the network of business 
Just the, people, the community that you're in greatly affects you. There was an economics professor, Scott Carell, who did a study of, of how your randomly assigned roommates at the U.S. Air Force Academy influenced your academics. And they found that the squadron you were placed in, uh, the SAT score of the average SAT score of that squadron either lifted or dropped the beginning cadets. They either rose to the challenge or they fell. Right? So the, the community that we are in greatly affects us. And this is, true, um, this is true when it comes to reading Greek and Hebrew. Some of you can testify you, you, through, the, through online or other means. You've connected with others who love the biblical languages, who are reading them, and it's like a river that sweeps you along. Others of you are wondering, you keep trying to do it solo, and it's not working. So you may need to say, really what you need is, a, is to connect with the community, either in person or online. Of course, we have some great programs back here. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to offer through the Daily Dose of Greek and Hebrew and others some, some community. We're going to try to offer a class and see if that offers some level of community for 10 weeks. But... So challenge, think about, is that what's lacking in your ability to form and keep a habit is do you not have the community of people around you who also value that? Another observation is to, another insight from behavioral science, again, it's rather obvious, somewhat obvious, make the behavior you are seeking to avoid more difficult. Make the behavior you are seeking to avoid more difficult. Um, so, again, the Nutrition Action magazine, I, I love some of the stuff they do, some of the studies they do. One of them, they had, you know, people want to eat less, okay, because we as Americans eat too much many times. So one of the things they did was they said, okay, all the, all the people in this group, you have to drink two glasses of water before you eat a meal. Well, you eat two glasses of water. There's not room in your stomach for as much food, and obviously those people... <laughs> lose weight, right? Another, another study they did, they, people had to use smaller plates. You couldn't put as much food on your plate, so you, you don't eat as much. Or they've done studies putting candy bowls not on the desk of people in office, but in the break room, and people eat much less when food's not right in front of them. So one of the studies cited in Atomic Habits was about um, the primary care physician at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Ann Thorndike, and her concern was that the food and drink of the hospital cafeteria was unhealthy. A lot of people would drink sodas and have unhealthy food. So she wanted that to change. But she, did, she didn't you know, do any education. She didn't, all she did was change the layout of the cafeteria and made very prominent water bottles, very prominent the healthy food. Still had unhealthy food, still had sodas. But just through those changes, for example, the consumption of bottled water increased over three months by 25.8%, and the sales of soda dropped 11.4%. So in other words, recognizing that we are, we are our environment, sometimes this is call, called choice architecture, our environment really affects us. Most people would say, man, I wish I were on my phone less. That's distracting me. It's keeping me from reading my Bible as much as I'm praying as much. It's keeping me from reading novels. I, I, but, but are you willing to to make that behavior more difficult, right? Does that, are you willing to plug your phone in in the basement, right? So that then, so that then next to your bed is an old-timey alarm clock, right? And, and, and when you reach over there and turn it off, there's no 
phone to pick up, right, to make it more difficult. Or you, some other ideas is to put screen time. Uh, there was a student here who told me that he has screen time limits on his phone, very limited, you know, so you can't just be surfing the Internet, scrolling Instagram. And, and his wife, only his wife knows the passcode, right? And so she, he can't turn it off and waste time, things like that. Of course, there are all kinds of apps and programs that will, will lim limit you in that way. Um, deleting, many people will um, delete, like they say, well, I want to keep Instagram, but I'm going to delete it off my phone. And then I'll make this ridiculously long password with numbers and symbols. There's no way I can ever remember it, and I'm just going to have it handwritten in this drawer. So only when I really need to get on, then I have to type it in. It makes it difficult. Make it, so make the behaviors that you want, don't want to do more difficult. So you could pause and say, what is it that I'm wasting my time on right now? That Man, I, if I could just snap my fingers, what would I stop doing? Of course, we're, we're, not, we're really talking more in the realm of distraction. I'm not dealing with, uh, deal, I'm not talking about the ethical realm or whatever like that. But how can, I, how can I use my time? How do you make that more difficult? And how do you make the things that you want to do uh, more natural and easy so that when you reach over, there's, there's a reader's Greek New Testament and not a, and not a phone? Uh, first thing in the morning, lighting, going off, blinking uh, to get your attention. Point number eight, and this, again, so many of these are obvious, but the more personalized the intervention, uh, most studies show the more successful the outcome. There was a study in Colombia, the country of Colombia, as to how to get people to pay their taxes they owed. <laughs> Some of them were received a letter. So of 100 people who received a letter, only eight of them paid their taxes. Some of them got a phone call. Of the phone call, 30 out of the 100 paid their taxes. Some of them received a personal visit about their taxes owed. Of the personal visit, 90 out of 100 <laughs> right, uh, met their tax obligation. So you, you think about why, why do, you know, my wife for... She's not using it. She's attending exercise classes now. But for a while, she would hire a personal trainer. And she's like, I know, she, she's like, I know that it's sort of a waste of money. You know, I should be able to just go to the gym myself. But if I don't hire a trainer, I won't go. <laughs> and so I need, to, I, need the, I need someone to help me. I need that discipline. We, many of us need that too on, on the biblical languages level. And I mean, that's, I hear testimonies of people Programs like Biblingo, programs like Biblical Mastery. This is why I needed, I needed this coaching. I needed this personalized intervention. I kept trying to do it on my own, and I could not. So it's, again, it, it ties in with an honest assessment of our temperaments many times. I got a, an email. He said I could share it, but I got an email from uh, just this last week from the guy who had been, I forget his position, top position at Raytheon. So isn't like, like a defense contractor. He's a physicist. And so he was telling me his, his history in Greek. He's like, at age 62, I decided I need proficiency in Greek, so I studied it, and now I can read 75% of the New Testament. Few of us have that sort of, you know, like, that sort of discipline. You know, most people, we need, we need help. We need, and so it's a level of, you know, what level of personalized intervention? Maybe you need more personalized intervention than you've got in the past. And you have to admit, what, you say, well, it costs money to pay a coach. Yeah, but if it got you where you want to go, would it be worth it? Yeah. Okay. Number nine. Number nine. People respond differently to different wording, 
to, to the variant wordings of challenges and requests. And so this is a little bit more, I don't know if this is going to, this is not something you basically would apply to your own life, but it makes me think about how, how uh, I would want to write things if I were at the school, if I were a ministry, to challenge people. This was a study done on tax compliance in Guatemala. Okay, so again, the problem of people evading taxes. And they sent all these different kinds of letters with different wording. To, and some of the letters were much more effective than others. The two most effective letters either appealed to societal norms or appealed to a deliberate choice. So, for example, this is one of the letters. According to our records, obviously translated into English, according to our records, 64.5% of Guatemalans declared their income tax for the year 2013 on time. You are part of the minority of Guatemalans who are yet to declare for this tax. So what would it, you know, what would it look like again to, to um, if you have young alumni from a school, you say, hey, did you realize this percentage of your class is keeping up, committed to keeping up and is, is with their Greek and Hebrew? You know, don't you want to be part of this group? There's an appeal to societal norms. And the second appeal is to deliberate choice. So this is the other letter that was effective. Previously, we have considered your failure to declare, to declare your taxes, to be an oversight. However, if you don't declare now, we will consider it an active choice, and you may therefore be audited and could face the procedure established by law. So you think about somebody saying, you know, uh, are you, <laughs> now that you've graduated from seminary, are you making an active choice to apostatize from the biblical languages? <laughs> to apostatize from your Reformation heritage for which people died to bring us back to the Scriptures? Are you making a deliberate choice to do that? So uh, studies, again, studies have been done related to this. One of them, Milkman, I think is interesting, is in hotel rooms. Hotels want you to reuse your towels for several reasons. One, they don't want to have their staff have to replace them every day. They want you, and there is environmental concerns there too, whatever. But, but uh, so studies were done with different signs. The one that was very effective was letting people know that 75% uh, of guests uh, typically use their towel, towel more than once. So like people, again, there's that desire to sort of conform to the social norms. And even more effective was the one that mentioned in this room, this percentage of people uses their towel twice, you know, or uses their towel more than once, and that there was a desire to, to conform to that. So it's que questioning, this is more of a bigger question, is how do we make being people of, of the biblical languages the norm, right, to make this the, what, what, what is normal, and that, that people want to be part of that beautiful and normal thing. Incentives and disincentives can be very effective in promoting habit formation. I can, I can almost guarantee you right now, I know a way to make sure that you read your Greek New Testament every day for the next year. So four, of us, four or five of us can get down here together with you, and you'll give us all your phone number. And we will, you will tell us, you'll confirm it, you'll announce it on social media, you'll maybe even make a bond, try, deposit a bond with someone. You're going to say, any one of you can call me any day, and if I didn't read Greek and Hebrew yesterday... I'll give you $500. You might do it once. You might miss it once, but you wouldn't miss it twice. Whew, that would be so expensive and painful. But it's, studies have repeatedly shown 
that if there's a pain involved, especially a financial pain involved, people are much more likely to follow through. One of, one of the authors here, I think it was a nudge, they're economists, so this is the way they think. One of them hadn't finished his PhD yet, and so he had, you know, I have to finish this chapter by February and this chapter by July. So he wrote checks to, the other, to his colleague, and then they were dated for those times. And if the chapter was not turned in, it wasn't, the, the professor was not getting the chapters, right? It was finishing the, at another school. If the, if the chapter didn't get turned in, he said, I cashed the check, and we had a party without him each time. So he knew if I didn't get that chapter in, I'm going to lose a lot of money, and then other people are having a party to which I'm not <laughs> invited. But according, if I remember correctly, he never cashed a check like it was enough, enough incentive. There are websites that let you do this, that organize this. One of them I've discovered from my reading is called Stick, S-T-I-C-K-K, like let the habit stick. And you, it involves where you, you, many of them, you can designate you know, this much money, and if I don't do it, this is where it goes. They do say it's most effective for the money to go somewhere that you hate. So for example, if you hate cats, you donate to a cat shelter. And so you know not only the pain that you've lost the money, but then say you're a UNC fan, you're donating to the Duke Athletic Department. It's just, just, just is apparently a very strong disincentive that few people are willing to make. You have to admit, if you did that, if you really set it up, you would almost certainly follow through, right? You almost certainly would, especially if the money level were high enough. B-Minder is another one where you can, uh, I forget, one of these apps, they just take your money. And people do it. People do it because they, they're like, this, this keeps me, I haven't been able to form this habit otherwise, but I don't want to lose my money. And the other one, I think you donate to. Now, personally, I would have a moral problem donating to like a political cause that I objected to morally, but I could see myself like just hating to donate to uh, UNC uh, basketball program or something like that, right? So you have to ask yourself. And again, this can be done at a very it can be done at a very basic level where you have the chart on the refrigerator and you say, if I don't read Greek and Hebrew, then I will do the kids' chores, you know, on set, which. I'll, I'll do, I'll be cleaning their bathroom and doing their laundry, you know, something you hate, something you don't want to do, or there can be some kind of financial, uh, financial penalty involved as well. So that's, again, just challenge, think about one or two things. What would it look like? What could you add incrementally? One or two of these things to help you grow in your habit of Greek and Hebrew. The final one we're going to look at, I like the name of it. This is literally what it's called. I've, I've cleaned it up a little bit for our group. You can imagine what it was before this, but it's called the what the heck effect. Okay, uh, something like that. Counter the what the heck effect. And this is, uh, studies have shown, I'll, I'll speak about this from experience. So let's imagine that you're, you're doing well on your diet. You're like, I'm eating healthy, I'm eating healthy. And then someone brings a box of new, warm, crispy cream donuts. And then you eat one, and then you're like, what the heck? And then you eat five. <laughs> and, what the heck? And then, you, and then you have ice cream later. You're like, I don't care. I already am on. I'm done. You know, like the sense of resignation. You've given up. You've d just tanked your confidence, and you're off track. Okay? So what do you do to counter this? According to the Milkman studies and other studies, people 
and you see this in, in diet plans too, people are much better if they have built-in sort of cheat days. So it's, it's better to have, say, rather than say, hey, I want to read the Greek New Testament four days a week, it's better to say, according to this study, I'm going to read the Greek New Testament seven days a week, but I have two flex days. So if I, if I get, have an exam, if I have a conference, it's okay. it's okay. I'm not off track. There's something about this didn't make me off track. This is built in that makes people not feel like throwing in the towel and being like, I'm done, I failed again. Right? It's sort of building in people who do uh, certain diets will have a built-in cheat day. So that way, one day a week, two days a week, they can eat whatever they want. And somehow that helps you to stay with the more rigorous, uh, rigorous goals to have that built in. So just some concluding thoughts before we leave you for four or five minutes, just quietly to think about challenge you, right? I'm not trying to manipulate you. I just want to give you a little bit of space to think specifically. I would encourage you to write it down or type it in your notes on your phone, like really put it in there and think about what you could do differently to, to change, to improve your habits here. So concluding thought, let's say you have a house that has a lot of sun and you think, man, it would have been nice to have a shade tree in this yard. When would have been the best time to plant a tree? Well, 30 years ago, right? When's the next best time? Today, right? You wish you had a larger retirement account balance. Man, it would have been great if I could have bought Apple and Amazon and Microsoft 20, 30 years ago, right? When's the next best time to plan for your retirement? Today. Start putting in today. Do you wish you had greater fluency in the biblical languages? Wouldn't it have been great if 20, 30 years ago, if, you've been, if you were around then, that, that you, that you uh, had developed these habits? Well, the next best time is today, right? The next today. This is your fresh start, right? This is, here we are. This is what this is about. There's a room full of people thinking the same thing. It's never a better time to have a fresh start. So I'm going to leave you now. Uh, Adam is going to come up in a moment and give away some more fun stuff. And don't forget Nathan Parsons' fascinating session. I attended his session last time. It was great. So just uh, last time we did this conference. And... Uh, just really appreciate and love y'all. I'm grateful that you're here. Give me the gift of you thinking about your habits for the next four or five minutes.